with surfing, for some reason, I was able to do it. And I think that's where a lot of the joy came from. There was no plan and there was no outcome and there was no like goal because I'm never going to be like a world-class surfer or make a living at it or anything. It's just something I do because I love it and and it loves me back, you know. I, I think that's kind of um, an incredible thing. And when you stumble on something like that in your life, you know, it's like you got to you got to feel grateful. It's like, wow, where... I still ask myself, where the hell did that come from? And it makes you wonder what's, what else is around the corner. Like, what's the next amazing thing, you know? Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to episode number 29 of the Face World Podcast. I had the pleasure to meet Clint Willis about five years ago. Clint authored and edited a number of books you can find on Goodreads, and the most recent one is called The Boys of Everest, The Tragic Story of Climbing's Greatest Generation. Clint and I immediately sparked a conversation about spirituality, meditation, and what it means to live a meaningful life. When I was a little girl growing up in Beijing, I dreamed of living a Californian life. So at the age of 27, when I first met Clint, I asked him, what if I want to surf? He responded, you surf. The good news is that Clint's answer didn't just stop there. He painted a picture for me on how I or anyone else could pursue their dreams and build a life around to support their passions. Clint is a significant influencer to why I started the Face World podcast. This conversation was recorded over Skype, and it was a learning experiment for me to figure out how to balance mono versus stereo tracks. Um, and I was recording without a headset, so you might hear some background echoes, um, but I've done as much as I could to enhance the audio quality. Please forgive me. Clint's words and wisdom have been carried with me over the past four or five years, so I thought it would be selfish not to share them. In fact, I'm still seeking opportunities to be able to work with Clint one day because it will be awesome. Before we get down to business, here are a few fun facts about Clint. He's an avid surfer who discovered surfing at the age of 50. He regularly practices meditation, yoga, and surfs as much as he can near his home, guess where, not in California, but Portland, Maine. In part one of our interview, Clint dissects the construction of his company called The Writing Company and answers questions such as how to create and sustain a collaborative environment, what is the process to promote and regularly practice collaboration among writers, how does Clint create an effective peer review system, what is the hiring process? What does it take to continue his legacy and embrace the company's unique culture? How does Clint recognize good versus bad writing? So I promise you that this will be really interesting whether you are a writer or not. And thank you so much again for listening to the Face World podcast. All the show notes and other tools, resources can be found on my website, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. Without further ado, please welcome Clint Willis.
on my way home, I was writing the beeline um, of the uh, MBTA in Boston. And, you know, I feel like I gathered a list of questions. I did a little bit more research on you. One thing I was so happy about was, um, you know, I'm personally very intrigued by the book, um, Bo The Boys of um, Everest. And... And then I started researching more about you on Goodreads, and I found these 50 or so books with your name uh, attached to them. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, an exaggeration. I mean, in the sense that they were all anthologies except for the Boys of Everest. I was just doing collections of stories about stuff that interested me. Um, it was fun, though, because I got to write introductory essays to many of them, and that was part of how I kind of found my voice as a writer before I wrote the climbing book. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So what year, what year um, was that, sort of finding your I voice? I start, I, well, I started doing anthologies. I think the first one was uh, Epic. I, I mean, I know that was the first one, but I think it came out in 96, probably. Mm-hmm. And were you a writer before 96? I thought so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, but I was more like magazine stuff, you know, things like that. And I spent a lot of my time as a financial writer because um, I worked at Money Magazine for about mm, off and on for like 10 years when we lived down in the city, 10 or 12 years. I was kind of in and out of the time life building. And much of my work was at Money. So I sort of learned to be a financial writer. And the scheme when I moved up here was that I would use financial writing to sort of support myself and then I would be able to branch out and do other kinds of work, which, you know, which worked actually. It took a while, but it, but yeah, actually it worked. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you said the city, um, did you mean like New York City or? Yeah, New York. Mm -hmm. Wow. So moving from, uh, what year did you move from New York to Portland? 1993. Oh, Wow. Nice. And you lived in New York for like 10 years. Well, I think, yeah, I showed up in New York in like 1980 after I dropped out of grad school. I was studying political science at Yale. And then I quit that program, moved back to the city because that's where I, all my friends were and um, moved in with a couple of pals. And then Jennifer and I took up with each other and I moved in with her. And then we got married really quickly, like six months after we the first time we went out, although I had known her for several years because she was a friend of a friend. But uh, anyway, so like we fell, you know, head over heels in love. And I moved in like the day I, the, I went home with from our first date. I went with home with her and I never left. And we married like six months later and um, and stayed in the city for like 12 years. And then we had by then we had two young sons and it was time to move on. I mean, we, we both wanted to get out of the city so we could raise the kids somewhere where we could get outside and they could get outside, you know. And also, um, I wanted to do my own writing and I figured I could support myself doing some financial work and then do other kinds of writing. And um, yeah, so that's what I did. And I, and I ended up, you know, I because I had worked at Time Life or Time Inc., they had a team approach to journalism. So I I was really into that idea. I love delegating and I love teaching people how to do stuff and, um, and you know, moving on to new things. And so I, would, I hired a couple of researchers when I came up here to work on stories I was doing. And then gradually I trained those guys to be writers and then they became editors and project managers. And the business went through a bunch of different iterations while I kind of figured out the model 
and um, and now the the writing company is still you know it's still around. It's a lot bigger now. There's four owners. Um, I mean, I still own the majority of the company, but there's I have three young younger partners who all have worked with me for a long time, and then we have a bun- about a dozen people we work with on a regular basis as writers, and we do projects for different financial service and media companies, um, providing editorial content. Um, and I spend some time, you know, kind of my, you know, the last few years, my real project has been trying to create a sustainable model so that it can continue without me. And, you know, we're getting there. So that's kind of cool. These, those guys are stepping up and running the company now and they do all the hard work really. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, how big, how many people together I try to quickly do the math for partners and then well there's like a dozen of us who are kind of on the team I guess is you know is what we call it like just people who the writing company is their main gig you know some of them are on staff some of them are freelancers but everybody's you know pretty committed to the community and to what we're trying to do and um, and then we have you know a half a dozen or so writers we work with as we call them role players just freelancers we're not their main gig but we're but they know how to do some of the stuff we know how to do, and we work well with them. So we call them in for certain projects. Nice. Uh, There's like, you know, a dozen, 15, Mm. something like that. The company has been around for a long time. I think it was 20 or so years altogether. Yeah, well, you know, we opened our doors like the day I got here, you know, July 4th, 1993, I think. Uh, We moved up here, and, you know, that Monday, I think I went and, found an office space and hired a couple of kids that, you know, that month. So yeah, it's like 20, mm, 21 years. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, we started this conversation four years ago and, um, mm. one of, uh, I, I've been telling a lot of my coworkers, you know, for me switching my career from Sapien Nitrile, then to digital influence group. And now at uh, Arnold worldwide, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, um, some of these brands, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have been consistently telling people about your company and I'm so glad I can actually do this podcast so they could hear it from you. And there is no better person to tell the story. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I'm really excited. Um, well, thank you. It's funny that we start talking about writing. I'm so interested. I've always been interested in your company. Um, one, it's not the most significant reason is the fact that I do, I've always worked with copywriters and just so you know they're no longer well some of them are still uh, called copywriters but very um in the past couple of years a lot of advertising agencies uh, really changed their approach and started hiring writers Mm -hmm. and journalists and um so uh, (laughs) that's interesting yeah it makes a lot of sense to me i mean i've always felt like there was you know uh there was a place in the kind of work we do for people who are really committed to writing. And, um, and I mean, that's what I was into and that's what I knew how to do. And so when I hired people, I hired people who either were or wanted to be writers. And we never were really communications people and we were never marketing people. But we find ourselves increasingly working with people, you know, where that's their, that's their primary training and their primary orientation. You know, they're trying to do some sort of marketing or some sort of communications, but they don't necessarily always come from a background that, you know, stresses writing and editorial skills. Mm-hmm. And 
I really love the idea of bringing people who are first and foremost writers into these kind of conversations about creating content um, because a lot of times the people who are having those conversations and who are funding those conversations actually aren't really connected to that tradition, you know, the tradition of writing which and journalism that, you know, that I sort of came out of where you took that stuff very seriously, you know, you, you know, when I started my career, I was a fact checker at Time Inc. And, you know, I was a young fellow with a lowly, lowly job in that building, but I felt this enormous responsibility, you know, because at the end of the month, you know, we were a monthly magazine, I was responsible for the facts in several stories. And not only the facts, but the, hmm, how would I, it wasn't just a matter of factual stuff, it was a matter of how the stuff read, and I don't mean in terms of style, but in terms of whether it actually said what it thought it was saying. Mm. You know, because if a reader called in with an interpretation of the writing that was legitimate and that was in some way introduced some, you know, problem into the story or identified some problem with the story, that was on me. You know, I was the youngest, least experienced person there, but it was my responsibility. And if you blew you know, just if you made these, you know, what would now be considered to be like just forgettable mistakes, it was a big deal, you know, and two or three of those in a year and you were out of the building um, and it was a tough gig to get. So it was serious, man. It was, I remember being up, you know, at two in the morning, pouring over some story, just like to make absolutely sure that there was nothing in there that did, wasn't exactly clear. You know, it was fabulous training. And I, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, every generation says this, but I don't think the guys coming up now get that kind of training, right? It's really hard to come by. But, and I wouldn't even, I would say that at our company, we have a tradition where every interaction is a learning and a teaching interaction. You're either teaching or you're learning, you're both ideally. So that when something happens, you know, we always use it as an opportunity. Like if something doesn't go well or someone has a question or just some interaction isn't quite right. We have these really cool conversations about why that's the case and what we can learn from it and how we can move forward. And when you do that consistently, you know, day after day, it's amazing, you know, how good people get at their work and how seriously they take stuff. And that, I think, is a huge competitive advantage, you know, in, in an environment where sometimes content feels a little bit like a commodity. You know, it's, it's, it's some content is a commodity, you know, it's like... It's, you know, it's a commodity. It's just something that you can get, right? But, but our ambition, you know, uh, is to do writing that's, you know, that's adds value, that's actually worth something and that stands out. And to do that, you just have to take it seriously, which, of course, is way more fun than the other thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this peer review system that you created for your company. And um, I'm saying uh, that because... Yeah, go on. Yeah, you know, because, um, you know, I've been working in advertising agency for a long time, perhaps too long is, you know, it's very easy to create conflicts. And, mm -hmm. and uh, when we talk about collective wisdom, and mm -hmm. collaboration, actually, even before collective wisdom, collaboration, we mean project manager, technologist, creative copywriter. And when we come together, we oftentimes have very very different opinions and I noticed a um, mm -hmm. symptom of people kind of um, 
are interested in, in sort of what they know and um, you know and there's probably many ways to describe the situation I'm sure you're aware of, uh, aware of this and I'm just so intrigued by having writers come together and and actually um, critique and and share feedback for one another mm. and how does that how do you create a system how do you kind of like uh, you know moderate that facilitate yeah Interesting. No, you know, you talk about it a lot, right? I mean, I, first of all, I had the advantage in the early going that I was the guy. I was the boss. I was the, the guy who knew stuff, right? So the guys I was, the people I was hiring had no experience, really. They were young and they were green and they were awesome, you know? So they wanted to learn and I wanted to teach. And so it was really, you know, it was kind of a win-win thing on both sides. And over time, we kind of developed a culture where Mm, it was partly because we're a self-selected group, you know, we're super careful about who we work with. And then when we, when we do choose to work with someone, by that time we've tried them out and we know that there's somebody who, who really values collaboration, who's really open to other people's ideas, especially ours at any rate, and, you know, who, who will value that experience of collaboration that's constructive. You know, so it's, some of it is about that, you know, choosing the right people, people who are oriented that way, and then talking about it a lot, you know, at every opportunity, bringing it up. I mean, we had a conversation Monday, we meet, there are half a dozen of us who meet once a week, and every month at our weekly meeting, um, one of those meetings each month is dedicated in part to going over the list of people we work with, everybody on our team and our community, and talking about their situation. and. People talk about interactions they've had and how they handled it. And, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff we talk about. You know, someone said that, what was it happened this week? A young writer had, um, oh, I know, had handed in a piece. And there was, she's a very, very strong young writer. I mean, very impressive. We, we love her. And so it was, it was interesting because the piece had some problems. And when the editor went back, the writer said, yeah, you know, I, I know I wasn't too clear about a couple of things and you know we all sort of jumped on that and we're like alright that's a great opportunity to remind her how we work and what our culture is like if you have a question about a piece you don't go forward and write it you call your editor and you talk to them about it you know we we also talk a lot about how the editing process happens you know the, the standard thing I grew up with was you, you someone would give you an assignment it might be a paragraph you might have a phone conversation then you'd go off and report and write this story and you might be off doing it for a month you know and um, then you'd come back with a draft a month's work right and they would read it and say well here's the problem here's the problem here's the problem and then you'd go off and have lunch with one of your friends and complain that they hadn't told you that in the first place right and <laughs> then you'd go revise the story and you know, it was like on a scale of one to ten, it could be a one to a ten. You know, it could be really a drag, or it could be just sort of a pain, or it could, or it could go smoothly. But it rarely went as smoothly as it could, was my feeling. And it seemed pretty obvious to me that the biggest problem was that the collaboration happened at the end of the story and not at the beginning, which seemed insane to me. So we don't do that. We make sure the collaboration with the client, between our editor and our writer, and then the client... We make that we move all that to the front or as much as we possibly can so that before we start work on the story, everybody knows where we are right now and where we hope to be, what we know and what we don't know, and how we're going to find it out. And then the, the writer is launched, you know, in the story. But mm, so much learning goes on in that early part when you're thinking about how to plan and structure your work on a piece, which is 
of course, you know, the crux of it, because how many times does a young writer sit down and go like, well, what do I do now? You know, well, our writers don't do that. They sit down and they know what they're going to do now and they do it. And then if something comes up along the way and they don't know, they have someone they can talk to who's more experienced than they are. And honestly, one of the reasons we do it that way is because of my own personal psychological makeup. You know, when I was a kid, I was sort of an anxious kid, you know, when I was a young guy, I was sort of an anxious young guy. And I can never imagine that. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hated it. I hated that feeling of anxiety, you know, so I look for ways to manage it. And for me, writing a story without proper guidance, that made me crazy, you know, and I'm also a reasonably empathic person and I didn't want the young writers who worked for me to experience that any more than was healthy or necessary, right? So, I hated the idea of sending some poor young writer out to do something they weren't equipped to do and not giving them the guidance they needed. So we structured this thing so people would be able to do this job without any unnecessary stress. You know, I mean, of course there's going to be some stress and some setbacks and some confusion, but it's amazing how much of the bad feeling that can happen in a collaboration on a piece of editorial work doesn't arise when you do the work up front to make sure that that process, that everyone has, you know, has bought into the process in the early going. With clients, it can be more difficult, you know, because they're not working for us, so we don't get to tell them what to do or when to listen to us. Or, you know, but there are lots of things we can do with a client, especially once a client comes to trust us, um, to get them involved with us in that early process. We can ask questions, we can offer ideas and, you know, create opportunities for that collaboration to occur. Whereas I think a lot of times writers, they get an assignment and they just bolt because they want to get it, they want to get going, you know. And, and sometimes I think they don't trust the client enough to, you know, in the sense that a lot of times clients are, they have things to offer that, that you know, that, that writers don't give them credit for, you know. They, they sort of think, ah, you know, uh, they don't know what they're doing or, you know, whatever, or they haven't articulated something well. So there's this sort of tendency to jump to the conclusion that they can't. Whereas we give our, we tend to be super open to the idea that our clients are our collaborators as well. And it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy when we make that space available. Clients tend to, um, tend to, you know, enter it with us. And it's really, it's cool. You know, then the collaboration is, you know, broader and, I mean, that's a huge big deal when you're working with your client as a collaborator. Mm -hmm. and I really like your, where you're going with this. And if I may ask a nerdy question, mm -hmm. in terms of collaboration, what are some of the tools, you know, for instance, like I use Google Doc a lot. <laughs> and then people can comment and share. I love Google Doc. Yeah. Love it. Love it. We, I, I, I love that as a collaborative vehicle. Like, we don't all use it. Um, but at, I, at the very Monday meeting I mentioned a few minutes ago, I, I mentioned it again as, a, as a, a, a great tool to work with writers on a draft. Um, I use it like I'm actually helping one of my friend's sons with his college essay. Well, essays. He's got like 20 of them. It's insane. Um, that's a whole other topic, the whole college admissions process. Because over the years, I sort of found myself helping kids with their college essays oh why didn't i get to know you before like <laughs> oh i i was barely i was dragging my feet through um english in college and yeah. if you didn't uh i probably <laughs> we probably talked about this briefly but it the funny thing is um as i came to this country when i was 16 17 some people didn't know that and 
I was already pretty much all the way through high school education in China. Yeah. You know, and then I had the choice. Well, this is like a <laughs> sorry to derive the story, but um, I decided to study regular English versus ESL, where like English is a second language in college. And instantly, instantly hit me. I just I couldn't read as fast. I couldn't write sure. as fast. I didn't get good grades. And oh, that was <laughs> man, yeah. that was a struggle. That's so hard, right? I mean, and I remember being a young writer. Like, I grew up in Louisiana, in South Louisiana, and I went to public schools, and they weren't very good schools, you know, by the standards of the people I met when I came up east to go to college. And so I was, you know, kind of behind. I was, I was a big reader growing up, so I had that, you know, on my side. And, but, I, uh, but I didn't know how to write a paper. For, you know, I knew nothing about how to write. And it took me years to learn how to write a decent piece of prose, like, you know, that had some, well, with any confidence, you know, that sense you have when you go to write a piece and it's kind of easy mm-hmm. and it's fun. You know, I didn't have that feeling until I was, you know, at least 30. I love that. Uh, maybe older. And yeah, it's really hard to learn to write is, is my feeling. Unless you're super lucky and you have a certain kind of education, you know, growing up and you do a lot of writing. Like our kids went to a school up here in Portland that's um, called the Wayne Fleet School. And they did a really good job helping them be, become writers. But, but you know, I've seen like so many writing teachers who don't know how to write. And it's not their fault. Like, they're teachers. They're not writers. But they're teaching kids how to write, and they don't really know how to write well. I mean, they have rudimentary skills of a certain kind. And it's a different deal when you're actually trying to write for publication or trying to, you know, write prose, you know, any kind of a, well, I don't know. It's just hard to write. (laughs) And it's hard to learn. (laughs) But it can be taught. I mean, I think it's hard to learn because people don't teach it. And they don't, or if they try to, they don't know how. I mean, I didn't run into good writing teachers, you know, when I was learning to be a journalist. I ran into some good journalists, but not many of them really knew how to teach teach you how to write. And so I had to teach myself, you know. How did you teach yourself? How did you go about it? I just kept trying to write pieces, and then people would tell me what was wrong with them, and I would try again, and they would tell me what was, you know, they would offer criticism. Mm -hmm. But they wouldn't say, they wouldn't tell me what was wrong with them in the sense they'd say, well, look, here's how you do it instead. They'd just say, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like that. And they'd offer criticisms, but no one ever... And, and there were one or two people who I learned watching them and listening to them talk about stories. One guy was a guy named Michael Sivy, actually. He was a financial writer. And he was a, a very kind of... He was sort of an intellectual type, you know? He was super well-read. And he took, you know, he looked at the markets from a sort of intellectual point of view and had read all the literature and was interested in other stuff too. I think he was a classics student, you know. And mm-hmm. Anyway, Michael was a great uh, uh, help to me. He edited my work the last couple of years I was at Time Inc. And I just remember learning from him. But honestly, I think I learned by just, I just kept trying to write pieces and failing. And eventually I figured it out. You know what else helped was editing other people. Like at one point, I left Time Inc. briefly to work on a startup magazine, and I I was editing all these freelance writers. And man, their their prose was their copy was really terrible by and large, and uh, and so I had to rewrite a bunch of stuff really fast. And honestly, I don't think the stuff I ended up, you know, the the drafts that I ended up with were were awesome pieces of journalism, but but they were you know they were better than the stuff that came into me and. One thing I've noticed again and again is that editing other people's copies seems to help people get over that hump to 
to where they're comfortable riding. Yeah, that's a kind of a counterintuitive approach in my in my opinion because I think you know most of us like bite our nails and we stare at a blank piece of paper hoping something will come out. Right. Um, you know, it's almost like editing other people's work. There was already a starting point. That's right. That's right. It really helps. You know, and the other thing is they've done a lot of even if the piece is bad, mm. they've done some of the thinking. You know, to get it sort of going, mm. and then and, and that frees you up to focus. I mean, and and actually, if you get decent drafts, it's 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 different. You know, like if you get a decent draft. You can start thinking about the kind of judgments that editors make because your mind is freed from the kind of organizational st structural stuff that, uh, or a bunch of it that a writer has to do. There's so many decisions you have to make when you have a blank piece of paper, right? You have to make like a million decisions. And True. when you have a draft, you still have lots of decisions, but a lot of them have been made for you, or at least someone's taken a shot at it. It's just easier. And then, and so you get to make a lot of these sort of higher end decisions. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, in terms of my own writing, too, you know, for many years I thought, like I started out thinking, you know, I want to write stories and I want to write about this and that. And I ended up doing all this financial writing and I thought, oh, man, I've kind of blown it here. You know, I've sort of missed my chance to be a real writer, you know, is how I thought of it. And what happened was I found that after I'd been writing about all this other stuff, like just grinding out many, many stories on um, just pieces of expository writing, you know, and... Uh, after I'd done a ton of that, I always used to say to people, it's like I was a musician who just played like a million like gigs and, you know, and then like I was a drummer who played like a thousand weddings and then I got stuff that I just totally had it down. Like the basics were so nailed that I could start improvising and then suddenly I was doing like jazz improv, you know, it was like really fun and free, you know, and liberating. So getting those basics down i think to some extent is this, is a matter of like just continuing to try and it was super important to me that i was a really really big reader like i read a lot you know i was one of those kids who like had my nose in a book all the time so i i had my you know i just had a lot of good prose in my head like and i had sort of models that i had sort of mm, internalized to some degree you know um, who are some of the uh, writers you really enjoy reading? I mean, growing up versus now, you know, have <laughs> they changed over time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes and no. It's funny. I mean, like when I was a little kid, um, I just kind of read whatever came my way, you know, and I didn't have a ton of guidance. My dad was a big reader, too, but he was kind of a, I mean, he had gone to college and law school and stuff, but he wasn't like a hugely, you know, um, what do I want to say? He, he, you know, it was a different time and a different place, right? So he didn't know world literature really, but he had read a lot of classics. You know, he really had. And so they were kind of lying around the house. So I would, you know, I picked up sort of stuff like he was a big fan of O. Henry, you know, who was a short story writer back in the, I don't know, early part of the 20th century. And I remember uh, he asked a friend of his when I was like, 12 or 13, hey, my kid is really into reading. What should I tell him to read? And his friend, who was, I think, a college professor at the local college, said uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Mutiny on the Bounty and um, uh, what else? Those two, I think, were the big ones. You know, so I read, oh, and Hornblower, the Hornblower novels, you know, about an English sea captain. Um, 
So those were really, I remember loving those. I was like, oh, those are amazing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, over the years, you know, I went, I, you know, I went up East to college and I got introduced to a lot of the sort of more kind of contemporary classics at the time, right? This is a while back, but like Hemingway and Faulkner and people like that. Um, but I always had a big thing for English writers, you know, like I was a huge fan of Joseph Conrad uh, as a young man. I really loved that. And I loved all the stuff set on the, on the ocean because my dad had been in the Navy, so I had sort of ideas in my head around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anyway, like Conrad was a big, big influence on me, you know, because Conrad wrote about what it meant to be a virtuous person. You know, there was a lot of that in his stuff. And so I used to say I got some of my ideas about what kind of person you should be from people like Joseph Conrad and Charles Dickens, you know, and Tolstoy and people like that. Um, many of whom I read without really understanding that they were a big deal. I just kind of came across them, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of cool, you know, to have that sort of innocence when you encounter these things. How, how do you identify good writing? Um, do you, you know, I feel like I've over the past month or so since I started podcast, I've overused the word visceral reaction and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of instead of engaging just intellectually, yeah. is that a feeling? Is it? Oh, I, I mean, you know, that's a great question. And the answer like just leaps up for me. Like, I believe it. It's true. There's no lies in it, you know, is the way it feels to me. And sometimes you can tell that, like, you can see the lies because there'll be a sentence that says one thing and, that, and, and there'll be evidence within the document, you know, that you're reading that, that on some level tells you that can't possibly be true, you know, or the writer will be making some emotional claim or, or something that happened. And you just say, that's just not, that's not valid. Either you're, either you're deceiving me and yourself, you know, and or yourself or you're just incompetent to make this kind of judgment. So I'm not interested in your writing anymore. You know, I mean, I, I say this to, I said it to this young man I'm working with on his college I say the other day, you know, every sentence that the reader, you know, encounters is an, is an opportunity for you to, um, to be truthful and to earn their trust or to lose their trust either because you overreach or because you make a mistake that suggests that you're not trustworthy, you know, like any little thing that you say that's verifiably untrue. And there's a million like ways to write a sentence that seems to describe what's going on or something real. But when you actually break down the sentence, you see that it's, it's literally not true. There's no way it's true. Like you write one sentence and another sentence, you say, well, if that's true, then that can't be true. It happens, it happens all the time in pieces. I can't call an example to mind, you know, because it's one of those things. But yeah. You know, it happens all the time. You see it in prose all the time. And as soon as that kind of contradiction arises, the writer, the reader doesn't have to analyze it. They sense it. They feel it. So on some level, they're aware of it. And it's not mystical. It's just the way the brain works, right? You're making all kinds of judgments that aren't on a conscious level. And they know they can't trust you and they lose interest, you know. Um, and the more sophisticated the reader is, the more they've read, the more practice they have at making these evaluations, of course, the easier it is to lose them. And at this point, I'm a sophisticated reader because I've read so much. And I think being a writer also or having done a lot of writing makes you, you know, it also means you're more sophisticated about this stuff because you're making those decisions yourself. You know it from the inside. And so you encounter this sense. I mean, it's I can pick up something generally and tell if I trust the writer really quickly and if I'm interested or not. And they're, and they're totally correlated. If I don't trust them, I'm not interested. 
because why do I need to sit here and have somebody basically make claims that they can't verify or back up, you know? You know, that's funny. One of the questions I didn't get a chance to ask was when you said you guys hire very carefully and, mm. you know, you hire like-minded <laughs> people. So I was thinking, what what is the hiring process? What is the interview process? So I bet you probably will re uh, request a piece of paper or a few pieces of work. Um, and Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, actually what we do, we have this really cool system that we've evolved over the years and it's, it seems to be working really well for us. Um, we, we, have, we will identify people who we think of as prospects mm. and we will have them on our list of writers we want to try to work with and we'll try them out on pieces and see how they do and, and at every stage we'll reevaluate how's it going, how's it going. And, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, what, what they're like to work with, what they're like to collaborate with. Are they fun? Are they nice? Are they interested in, you know, what we have to say? Do they, you know, are they, are they I don't know, are they able to engage in a collaboration in a way that feels, you know, comfortable and, and, and fun, really? And, and, you know, in terms of their skill set, it's cool. You know, if, if their skill set is, is still, you know, on the early part of the learning curve, that's fine. We just pay them less. And you train them, yeah. you know. And if they really know what they're doing, you know, um, uh, you know, to some degree, then we pay them that much more. But we're still working with them to get them to where ultimately we like to get to people to where they know how to do everything that we know how to do, and then they're potentially can be involved in all kinds of projects and all kinds of roles and so on. But that process takes takes place over time. So it's it's not so much what someone's skill set is at a given moment. They may be making a mess of their copy, you know, still to some degree. I mean, that's overstating it. But but you know, they can still be definitely got a lot to learn, you know, and but if they have the right attitude and the right feeling and the right sort of and honestly, you know, Faye, I think it comes down are they are they in a person who's interested in telling the truth, you know, are they someone who's interested in being straight about stuff, you know, because those kinds of people are really cool to work with because they don't, they don't try to manipulate you, they don't try to deceive you, they don't try to manipulate or deceive themselves, they're interested in what's really going on here and that's a really important characteristic in someone who wants to write prose, I think, no matter what sort of prose. Because it's all about truth-telling. It's all about reporting the news, you know, in a way that's super clear. Mm -hmm. I think this, as you're describing the, the, um, the process, because I think it's not only a reflection of your employees and your partners, but also um, truly of who you are. And, mm. you know, you won't be able to avoid this topic now we're on this podcast. And uh, let, let's talk about you for a second, if that's okay. Sure. Sure, sure. So, um, I, you know, I mentioned this before, and I, th I think we've only met two to three times. And the first time um, for me to recall the experience uh, was at Eli's Bar Mitzvah. And, <laughs> you know, I, I remembered uh, just meeting you for the first time. I, I realized I could, I could easily listen to you talk all day. And <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> You're welcome. And I... I could listen to me talk all day, too. <laughs> Ask for your ask uh, for your employees' uh, feedback on that. It'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, exactly. They they have listened to me talk quite a lot, and honestly, I think sometimes they've had about and you know there are moments when they've had plenty of it. You know, and in fact, you know, just to go on about the writing company for another minute, I mean, 
part of my job at this point in my career is learning to shut up and, <laughs> and, and let them and let them talk and and figure stuff out themselves and and make choices themselves because they've acquired quite a lot of wisdom themselves at this point. In many cases, they're in a better place to make the decision because they're on the ground in a way I'm not. And it's it's you know I'm talking quite a lot here because I guess that's the idea of this thing. But I do find that I've subside I sub I'm it's I subside into silence more readily than I once did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the that approach compared to the, one of the reasons why I respect uh, Richard Branson so much is because, you know, he runs, I mean, he owns these uh, dozens of companies. And one of the things he commented on Steve Jobs was um, that Steve didn't really delegate all that much, that Steve only trusted his own instinct. And I know yeah. that <laughs> this is very controversial, like being on a podcast versus, versus Richard Branson truly trusted uh, the people he appointed to be in those positions instead of overriding their decisions, yeah. uh, disapproving them. So really interesting. I think one of the, <laughs> you know, we, we met four years ago, but there's one thing that you said to me that kept echoing in my, you know, in my mind, not only in my mind, I actually kept repeating it verbally as well, uh, sharing with others. And it's, it's almost, it sounds funny, comical, but it's very true was Knowing that you're a surfer, and I had been dreaming of uh, the you know California lifestyle and, and all that, and since mm. I was a little kid in Beijing, um, we kept mm. you know we start talking about it, and then I ask you very simple questions like, "What should I do if I want to surf?" And your answer is, "You surf, right?" So mm. I remember it, like everybody at the table was cracking up, and it is really true. And of course, you follow up with actually how you do that. And for you, it's really build a life. I'll never forget your answers. Build a life around your passion, your dream, actually make it work. So it's not about, you know, then now start to speaking uh, on your behalf. It's not really about being lazy or complaining about the things you want to do, but you don't get to do mm-hmm. is you love writing, you love surfing and yoga, many other sports and you know meditation. And you're able to do all of that. And and it just, it's amazing. It's its amazing to me, but it seems very straightforward and very simple to you, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what can I say? Uh, I think, you know, you know, as I said earlier, I was, I, I, you know, I mentioned I was an anxious young man and, and, a, and an anxious kid and not all that happy. You know, I was, I was pretty stressed out a lot of the time when I was younger. And so it was super important to me, like, to feel better, you know, that was my main goal, I think, really, was to feel better, and so I did a lot of work, you know, I I started seeing a psychotherapist when I was about 30, when it became clear to me that I just was, you know, that my life was going to get worse if I didn't, and it wasn't going to get better, and, you know, my wife Jennifer was really the one who kind of nudged me in that direction pretty hard, and it just seemed like a great idea. You know, I was like, okay. So I started doing that work, and that really helped me sort of get to a place where I could start thinking about, you know, uh, just being more skillful about how I tried to be happy. Because um, in the end, you know, ultimately, I think that's what people want, right? They want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, well, how do you get happy? And the answer is, mm, I don't know. It's 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 
it's but it's it's central you know it's it's the central problem right and so like when i started my business it was really clear to me that i did not want to spend you know um all of my time like writing financial stories because i had done that already for quite a while i know i was going to be doing a fair amount of it for a while but i wanted to do other stuff and a lot of that other stuff had to do with just figuring out how to be more happy like you know i think for some people it's totally cool you start a career you're really into what you're doing and you just do that all the time i had this really strong sense that i needed to clear some space to do some work to get out from under or whatever it was that was bugging me you know about being a human being and so i worked i just every decision i made was trying to clear some space to do things that i thought would help me feel better and so Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I needed to make a living because I felt I had two children and my wife, and I felt like, for whatever reason, it just seemed to me really important to just, you know, take care of them on some level, like to make sure I made a living, and that that freaked me out too. So, I don't know. So I was really motivated to carve out some space for myself and get some freedom in my life, just so I could sort of tackle these issues I felt like I needed to tackle. So I made like every decision I made was like how do I how do I get free? How do I get free? And then once I was free and had some space it was like what do I do with this space? And the, and the two those two questions were like how do I get free and then what do I do with my freedom? They kind of informed almost every choice I made for a while. Um, and I worked super hard to cram it all in, you know, I was starting a business. I had, I had kids I wanted to spend time with and you know, I had uh, I was, you know, interested in like I got I you know a lot of stuff I had got interested in as a kid and then didn't do in my early adulthood I was really interested in climbing and being outdoors and stuff like that so I was kind of cramming that in there and you know I'd get up I got into yoga and that made me feel better and then I got a meditation practice going that made me feel better so I was sort of getting up earlier and staying up later you know to cram it all in and um, that was sort of intense and it taught me a lot too I don't know, Faye, you know, it's like... I, I think, you know, yeah. I, I think that a lot of, I think a lot of us feel that way. And perhaps um, we could argue, I think some people don't need that much space, um, that much freedom. But ultimately, you know, there's an article on LinkedIn, uh, front and center got like probably 50,000 views. Um, you know, it's like, why, you know, how to be happy when everybody else is angry and cranky at work. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, and I think there's so many of us, myself included, I hope I didn't let you down by not surfing every day four years later. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, I'm still working on the plan. You know, surfing, the cool thing about surfing is like, I, you know, I started like eight years ago. I was almost 50 and I, I was a really good swimmer, you know? Yeah, no, I was a super, I I was a competitive swimmer growing up and so I was really, I was really happy in the water. I love the water and I love the ocean. But I had never surfed, and I took a surfing lesson just because I, I knew there were people surfed around here, and I thought, oh, that that's something really cool. I got to try that. You know, I was always just trying stuff, and it was sort of on my list. You know, and I I went surfing, and I was just like, oh wow, wow, I really really like this, and I became, you know, it just something just shifted for me, and it became kind of like the main thing I was interested in doing. You know, apart from making a living and you know stuff like that I just wanted to surf so and what I found about it one of the things I found about surfing was that like I never took a I took one lesson and then I just surfed and I got better and it was because just being in the water paddling around 
letting the waves come and just trying to get up on the board and surf. I learned all this stuff in this kind of in like unconscious way. You know, you have all these implicit like memory parts of your brain that hold implicit memory and stuff. I have all this implicit knowledge of surfing in my brain, but I could not articulate it. I have no idea what I'm doing now differently from eight years ago that makes me a lot better surfer than I was. You know, it's and I love that or sort of just I don't know if organic's the right word, but I just love that kind of way that happened, you know, because I was always a very earnest sort of learner, you know, I'd be like, I'm going to read all the books, talk to all the people, get myself prepared, and then I'm going to do it, you know, which was a big problem for me as a mountaineer, like, you got to, you got to be more like free, and you just got to like, kind of go for it, and I was not great at that, but with surfing, for some reason, I was able to do it, and I think that's where a lot of the joy came from, there was no plan and there was no outcome and there was no like goal because I'm never going to be like a world-class surfer or make a living at it or anything it's just something I do because I love it and and it loves me back you know I I think that's kind of um, an incredible thing and when you stumble on something like that in your life you know it's like you gotta you gotta feel grateful it's like wow where I still ask myself where the hell did that come from and it makes you wonder what's what else is around the corner like what's the next amazing thing you know so that concludes part one of my conversation with Clint in part two Clint delves into his decision process and making his life a reality we also cover secret origin questions such as has Clint always been this way the kind of person he is today? And what is Clint's psychological makeup that contributes to his success and lifestyle? Let's also walk through a day in Clint's life from a.m. to p.m. You know, what does it really look like? How does Clint practice yoga, meditation, and mindfulness? Really, how do we get calm? Last but not least, how not to live a life in narrative and just be comfortable with change and uncertainties. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.